Thank you, Pastor. And now I invite you to give your attention to God's word. Found in Joshua chapter 7, we'll actually be considering all of chapter 7 and 8 together, even though our scripture reading will at least initially only encompass verses 1 through 9 of chapter 7. Good to see all those friendly faces. And think about what a privilege it is that we are able to gather for worship. That we are here in the company, not just of the people seated next to us and around us. But we genuinely believe that by means of the Holy Spirit of God, we are gathered in these moments in the very presence of God. It is an overwhelming thought to consider. But what a great and glorious blessing. That God is, and he is the rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Joshua chapter 7, beginning with verse 1. But the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things. For Achan, the son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took some of the devoted things, and the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near beth Aven, east of Bethel, and said to them, Go up and spy out the land. And the men went up and spied out Ai. And they returned to Joshua and said to him, Do not have all the people go up, but let about two or three thousand men go up and attack Ai. Do not make the old people toil up there, for they are few. So about 3,000 men went up there from the people, and they fled before the men of Ai, and the men of Ai killed about 36 of their men and chased them before the gate as far as Shebarim and struck them at the descent. And the hearts of the people melted and became as water. Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until the evening. He and the elders of Israel, and they put dust on their heads. And Joshua said, Alas, O Lord God, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all to give us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? Would that we had been content to dwell beyond the Jordan. Oh, Lord, what can I say when Israel has turned their backs before their enemies? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of it and will surround us and cut off our name from the earth. And what will you do for your great name? We'll ask the Lord to add his blessing to the reading of his word. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. And this is the word which by the gospel is preached to you. Amen. And so our friend Don Reed of the Statler Brothers told us in our recent visit with him about an incident that occurred when they had just gotten their start with Johnny Cash. As I'm talking about these names, I hope they're fondly familiar to you. And uh, as they, he said in those days, got paid by cash, they uh, had a time when they were short of money. 
And he said, we went to John, and he said, we borrowed about $300 from him. And he said he readily gave it to us. He was always encouraging to the group, he said. And they, uh, they had to make a car payment, actually purchase an automobile. And so he gave them the money, and the next month they got a payment together, put it in an envelope, knocked on his door. And uh, he opened the door, and uh, they handed him an envelope. And he said, what's this? And he said, it's the money we owe you. We're paying you back. And at that point, he threw it on the floor and looked at him with a rather angry look and said, you're leaving me, aren't you? And they said, no, we're not, we're not leaving you. We're, we're paying you back. And he said it took them an hour to convince him that all they were doing was paying back the $300 that they owed him. And finally, he apologized to them and said, I'm sorry. He said, nobody has ever paid me back money that I've loaned them before. It is a Christian testimony that the people of God should be honest. I know that sounds, perhaps that sounds very minor, and you're wondering, why did I get up and come to church this morning to be told something that I should already know? But it is a hallmark of the people of God that we should be noted for our honesty, particularly in matters of stewardship. Rachel this morning read from Acts chapter 5, and and I selected that passage not because it came right before the offering and I was trying to goad you into giving more money, but because that passage in the Old Testament highlights lessons that are here for us in this Old Testament passage in Joshua. In fact, when Acts chapter 5 describes Ananias and Sapphira holding back from money that they gave to the Lord, the same word is used there is that is used in the Greek translation of the book of Joshua that describes what Achan did in withholding or hanging on to the devoted things. He misappropriated them. And that's what Ananias and Sapphira did in the New Testament. They, they dishonestly held on to money that they said they had given to the Lord. They misappropriated it, and God's judgment resulted. In the taking of Jericho, God, of course, prevailed, and the people of Israel enjoyed success in conquering that city and in the following up of their destroying it. But God had given very specific instructions about things that they were not to take for themselves. Now, normally, the principle is in matters of warfare that the spoils go to the victor. You know, if you win the battle, you get whatever is there. But God had made it clear that there were things they were not to appropriate for themselves. And yet, one man, Achan, decided that he was going to take of the spoils. There were things there that were just, just too enticing for him. So he took them and buried them in his tent. Now, we might tend to think that that's no big deal. After all, it's to be expected. But it was a very big deal in the eyes of God because his people were not conducting themselves in the way that he had commanded. And that shows us that, in fact, God takes sin seriously even when we don't. God is the determiner of what is right and wrong. Sin is not determined by a church council or by any group of ethicists who might meet at any given time. 
I remember reading years ago about how Harvard University had been given a rather large endowment so that they could teach a course on ethics. And this, of course, already well into the 20th century when uh, matters of ethics had been disconnected from the transcendent law of God as he had delivered. People trying to devise means of determining what's right and wrong apart from God's law. And so Harvard was trying to come up with some sort of curriculum to teach ethics so that they could take advantage of this large endowment that had been given to them. The professor, having taught the course, summed it up at the end by telling his students this. He said, don't do anything stupid and keep your name out of the newspaper. Ethics, according to Harvard University. And that's basically the way that people operate now. Just try not to become notorious. Have people say bad things about you. But we need to understand that God is the determiner of right and wrong. And he always takes sin seriously. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. Ezekiel the prophet proclaimed in no uncertain words. We also know that the wages of sin is death. Now the rest of that verse is good news. But the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. But the point is, the wages of sin is death. What do we earn by living life in rebellion against God's law? Death. Separation from him. Destruction. There's no getting around that. The scripture is full of it. And of these warnings. Numbers 14, 18. But he will by no means clear the guilty. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation. As Christians today, we gather together because we are here in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus bore the guilt of our transgressions himself on Calvary's cross. And so we understand that at one and the same time, God will by no means clear the guilty. And yet, because he who knew no sin became sin for us in order that we might become the righteousness of God, guilt has been punished in Christ Jesus. So we know the mercy and grace of God. But God takes sin seriously. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. The Lord Jesus teaches us. And of course, we've already heard read Acts chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. In the New Testament era, Ananias and Sapphira, God takes sin seriously. By the way, that is a wonderful verse which proclaims the deity of the Holy Spirit. Lying to the Holy Spirit is lying to God. We believe in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Three persons, one God. So even though our culture may take sin lightly and may make fun of us when we discuss it, God takes it seriously. You probably heard the story, which is probably an apocryphal one, when uh, Calvin Coolidge was president of the United States. By the way, do you know what his first name was? John. John Calvin Coolidge. Presbyterian heritage there. A man who was noted for not being of many words. His wife's name was Grace. She apparently was not able to go to church with him one Sunday, and he came back home, and she wanted to know what the sermon was about. And he, she asked him, said, what was the sermon about? And in his, uh, you know, non-oratorical fashion, he said, uh, uh, sin. 
Well, what about it? What did the preacher say? What did he say about sin? He said, we're supposed to be against it. What we also see from this passage is that sin is born in the heart and produces horrible results when left unchecked. A.I. tells, I'm sorry, Achan uh, testifies himself later on as uh, the Lord, of course, tells Joshua that he needs to get up, asks him why he's fallen on his face in verse 10. Israel has sinned. They have transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. They have taken some of the devoted things. And he gives them instructions on how to find out who it is that has taken those things. Obviously, the Lord knows, but this is an exercise for Joshua to go through. And so it turns out to be Achan. And he fesses up, as it were, so to speak. And um, Achan says in verse 20, truly, I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel. And this is what I did when I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels. Then I coveted them and took them and see they are hidden in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath. Now, Joshua dispatched someone immediately to go. They dug it up. It was all there just as Achan had said it would be. But notice how it happened. He saw it to start with. Now, there's no sin in looking at something. In fact, we can't avoid seeing things sometimes. Boy, isn't that the truth? Wish I could unsee things many times. But he saw it. But from that point, he coveted. He wanted them. And there begins the problem. Seeing it led to coveting it, and then coveting led to acting on that sinful desire, and he took them. And sin was manifested. Judgment comes. Achan and his entire family are killed. It's one of those uh, passages in Scripture that makes us uncomfortable. We read it and we wonder, what does family have to do with that? Why, Why were they killed? But it tells us how extraordinarily serious sin really is when God's covenant is uh, is broken. It tells us just how much we need the Lord Jesus Christ. If it were not for Christ enduring the punishment for our sin upon the cross, we see an example in Achan of what would happen to all of us. Wherein we would become objects or would remain rather objects of the wrath of God. Yeah, that's not popular, but it's true. We see the same thing played out in the very beginning when the first sin was committed back in Genesis chapter 3. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. So looking at it wasn't the problem. It was when she began to desire it. Now, of course, we know Satan was providing this temptation all the way along, but feeding into that desire. She saw it. It looked pleasing. She took it. She ate. And men, note that little phrase. She gave it to her husband who was with her. At some point, he should have said, hey, we we should not be doing this. But he stood silently by. 
and partook. Over in James chapter 1, verses 14 to 15, we see this also illustrated. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Sin is always destructive. Sin is always harmful. And sin ultimately deserves God's judgment. Now, this matter is dealt with. The defeat, of course, happened in a very embarrassing way. They were just fresh off this extraordinary victory at Jericho. Achan took those items, misappropriated them, buried them in his tent. Joshua, according to our passage, of course, uh, is considering how to attack this next city. And the spies come back and they say, hey, look, we don't need many people to take care of this. There aren't even many of them up there. There's no point in making everybody work so hard. Just send a few thousand up there. They can handle this matter and come back and we'll all be good. And, of course, the 3,000 go and they're whipped. They come back in embarrassing defeat. Quite a few of them are killed in the process. You see, the consequence of the disobedience was borne out in this embarrassing defeat in the face of the enemy. Joshua suddenly is concerned. What's going to happen to the Israelites when people find out that they're whipped by this insignificant place called Ai? We're really going to be in trouble. We're going to be cut off from the land. And so the sin and rebellion had to be dealt with. Now, once it was... Victory ensued. Ai is defeated. I'll just give you the summary of chapter 8. And in this, we begin to see a principle that is very important to us, that God's severe judgment opens the way for his mercy and grace. Sin is dealt with, and victory is the result. Sin must be dealt with in our lives. We are called upon to confess our sins. We're called upon to acknowledge them, not manage them, not try to redefine them. We are never given the right to go back into God's word and manipulate it and and conform it to the times. We are to conform ourselves to God's revealed word, accepting his word as his word, regardless of what the culture around us may say about it. And as we do that, we come to the realization that in the confessing of our sins, there's forgiveness of sin. After all, God's made provision for us in his grace. Grace abounds even to the chief of sinners, as Paul tells us in the New Testament. So on any given day, when we come face to face with our failures and shortcomings, we confess those and acknowledge to the Lord and never have to be concerned that there's a scarcity of grace. Think about that. Is there going to be enough turkey for Thanksgiving this year? We're hearing about all the supply chain problems. What about gasoline? What about other necessities of life? I was so glad when I went to the grocery store this week and and they had my fruit punch there in the... I love that Minute Maid fruit punch. I just... That's my thing. That's what I've got to have. And I've been worried that somehow it's tied up in a cargo ship off the coast of California somewhere. It's not going to make it to the grocery store. We're having to deal with these issues at the moment, and a lot of things may be deemed scarce. 
but not God's grace. God's grace is ours in abundance. And so God's people experienced his grace in the dealing of sin, this horrible dealing with sin that is death. We realize that forgiveness to us comes by way of the horror of the cross. The only truly innocent man is ignominiously put to death on this horrid instrument of capital punishment and of torture. That's how awful sin is. And yet by way of that horrible judgment, we may know God's grace. And we see it here. These events took place in a valley of Achor, a valley whose name means trouble. There's a person in our lives that we've known for many years now. To this day, when she sees me, she says, hello, trouble. And reading this passage, I'm wondering if my name's not Achor. Place was called a place of trouble once. Once Achan was killed, when his whole family, they were buried there under a huge pile of rocks. And that remained a memorial to that whole awful thing. But further on in Scripture, in Isaiah chapter 65, for example, we read a rather extraordinary thing. In talking about the way that redemption shall be manifested, it speaks of locations. Two of them. Sharon shall become a pasture for flocks. And the valley of Achor, a place for herds to lie down for my people. Who has sought me. Now that's an illustration of God's peace that will permeate when flocks can lie down. There are no predators that are after them. So this place of trouble, this place where or that had been characterized by sin and rebellion suddenly is uh, is described as a place of peace. That's what grace does. And then in Hosea, Hosea, the prophet who's called upon to marry Gomer, who of course, rebels against him and against the Lord and commits horrible sin. In chapter 2, verse 14, a corner is turned. And concerning this one who had rebelled and sinned, the Lord says, Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her her vineyards. And make the valley of Achor a door of hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. God promises restoration to someone who didn't deserve it. Just as he promises to all of us. And so Achor, rather than being a place of judgment, is seen as a place that illustrates for us a door of hope. Do you see my point? A place called Calvary that was a place of judgment where an awful event occurred. The whole earth became dark for hours on that Friday because the wrath of God was being poured out upon the Son of God. But that horrible event becomes a wondrous thing to us because now we look to the cross as a means of salvation. The cross has become a symbol of hope to us and of life, a doorway of hope. I've opened a lot of doors in my life. Doors that have led to some places and some doors that have led nowhere at all. I remember being in a house one time that had been constructed by 
different people, and apparently there wasn't a lot of good communication that went on. And I remember opening a couple of doors that went nowhere. There was no closet behind them. There wasn't anything there. Just opened it up, and there was a wall. Now, I don't know what happened in the design phase of this uh, structure, but that's just the way it worked. But when we think of God's judgment, we as believers see that awful occurrence of judgment being transformed into a doorway of hope for us. And you know, the neat thing about doors is that you can walk through them. Thanksgiving is coming up and uh, I can already smell the turkey in the dressing. The bread baking. All those things they tell us not to eat. Think about my Aunt Patty cooking those green beans and the corn that she has ready. I think about in God's good grace, if we're able to be there, hoping that our grandson will make his appearance. He really does want to see his Grammy and Grandpa. Think about walking in the door of home. My dad will be 90 the day after Thanksgiving. He and mom will be married 65 years in March if they live that long. I think about the blessing of having parents and of having family and just the experience of home. Many people haven't had that experience. I know that. But I'm telling you right now, there is a doorway of hope for every person on earth Regardless of your background, regardless of your experience in the moment, because judgment once upon a time fell and the Son of God endured it, you and I by faith can walk through and there will be peace forevermore. May God bless you and me that by the grace of God, We will live in that hope and that certainty because God hasn't left anything undone that needed to be done. You will never exhaust the supply of his grace, never. And that grace is yours through Jesus Christ the Lord. Trust him. Turn away from whatever it is that would keep you from linking your life to his. I don't know what it is, but it's not worth it. The world may tell you you're all right as you are. Well, the good news is you can come to the Lord as you are, but he's not going to leave you that way. He will transform you and make you into the person he wants you to be, all because of what Jesus endured for our sakes. May God bless you to know Christ as we worship the one true and living God through his beloved Son. May the glory always and forever be his. And thanks be to him, always. Father in heaven, As we bow our heads just now in prayer, we acknowledge that we deserve your wrath, that we all have sinned against you. We all have committed misappropriations. We all have demonstrated that you would be perfectly justified in wiping away the entire of humanity because of our rebellion against you. Just because we have made little of our sin doesn't mean that sin is a little thing. Forgive us, we pray. Grant us mercy. And that in this very moment, 
open our eyes not only to the horror of our own transgressions, but to the glory of your love that is manifested in Jesus Christ the Lord. To know that he has come and endured what we deserve in order that we may have what he deserves. Oh, Father, please take my feeble, fumbling attempt to describe such an amazing and wondrous love that is ours. And Lord, grant that we would see no man except Jesus and him only. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. Change my heart, O oh God. It's a prayer. Let's stand and sing it as we close. And so may grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ be with and abide with you all.